Well, as you can see, we are stepping out of John's Gospel for another week, uh, mainly to introduce our theme for this year. And I use the word introduce rather loosely this morning since last week and the week before. Uh, Herb and Kevin both preached on discipleship. That is our theme uh, for this uh, year. My thanks to uh, Herb and Kevin for filling in. Herb got the call to fill in for me Saturday night at 8.30 in the evening. So my thanks to them for filling in uh, for me. But we are looking at our topic uh, this morning. And uh, so the sermon's a little bit different. This is an introductory uh, sermon for what we're gonna be looking at for this year. If you've been with us for the last five or so years, you know that each year we focus the special events of our ministries and our summer sermon series and our books of the month around a particular topic and theme. Always trying to see, always seeking to grow and mature in Christ. Our mission statement as a church is this EBC exists to call, mature, and send disciples of Jesus Christ. That is our mission statement. We call people to the faith, we mature you, we seek to mature you, and then we send you out into the world, into your mission field, always seeking disciples. Of Christ. We're driven by the verse above me here. We proclaim him, we exalt Jesus. Above all else, we point people to Christ. We point you to Christ. Why? So that we, speaking of the leadership, so that we as the leadership of EBC may present every man complete, fully mature in Christ. This is the desire and prayer of every elder and ministry leader and staff member here at the church. And one way we seek to accomplish this goal is by collaborating together in the summer as elders and as staff and prayerfully considering where we are as a church and in what areas the Lord would have us grow. And then focusing each of our overall ministries from children to youth to adults from worship, to equipping, to neighborhood groups, to the resource center, and focusing our efforts, planning our goals around a certain theme, a particular area of the Christian life we can grow in. So I said our theme is discipleship. More specifically, our theme is growing a culture of discipleship. Why? Because a faithful church is a disciple-making church. A faithful church is a disciple-making church. And if you don't believe me, believe Jesus. Matthew 28. Jesus is readying himself to ascend to the Father. He's issuing final commands to his followers. And he says, go therefore and make disciples. This is your duty. This is your calling above all else. Prioritize disciple-making and do this of all the nations, those who look like you and don't look like you, those who share the same culture, those who are from different cultures, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our call to discipleship is a Trinitarian call. So we serve and obey Yahweh we teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Discipleship 
is about being an active part in one another's obedience to Christ. And then Jesus says, lo, I am with you always. This calling is so weighty, you need my spirit in you and with you. Even to the end of the age, our call to disciple does not end until Christ returns for his church. These are his parting words to his followers. Again, a faithful church is a disciple-making church. Now let's define our terms as we begin. What is discipleship? What are we talking about here? What kind of culture are we hoping to see grow and permeate EBC over this next year? Here's the definition. Discipleship is life-on-life ministry that personally values and applies God's word to yourself and is also, and this is where things get a little messy, and is also intentionally and selflessly devoted to others for their spiritual growth. I'll say it again. Discipleship is life-on-life ministry that personally values and applies God's word to yourself and is also intentionally and selflessly devoted to others for their spiritual growth. Let's whittle it down, make it a little simpler. Discipleship is this, God's people devoting themselves to God's word and giving themselves to one another. This is discipleship. Now, by just hearing that definition, we immediately see how countercultural this is. I don't know if you've noticed, we are a very individualistic society. Have you noticed that? And if we're not careful, that individualism can easily seep into the church. And I will venture to say that it has already seeped into the church. We know it's seeped into the church. We know it's seeped into our life because the first half of discipleship is what we're drawn to, right? That first half. A love for God's word. A study of God's word for ourselves. We're drawn to that because we can read books that we want to read. We can listen to podcasts that we want to hear. We can watch sermons from our favorite preachers whenever time suits our schedule in our home. And we can do all of this on our iPhones, our individualistic phones, the iPhone. Sell it and buy an Android. It's more godly. (laughs) It's the first half of the definition. We're drawn to that. We want to be a part of that. But now we bring in the second half of the definition. When people now get into the mix, well, I don't know if this is for me anymore. I don't know if this is for me. Because this is when things get challenging. This is when we're challenged personally about what we believe, even more why we believe it. This is when we start to see our own deficiencies and shortcomings. This is when our selfishnesses fell and our pride is exposed. Especially in our polarized world, 
where everyone, everyone has to think exactly like we think and hold the same principles, not gospel principles, but hold the same principles, preferences, political views, COVID views, even some theological views. And they need to hold them with the same fervor and energy in order for us to have any relationship with them. We live in an individualistic society. But discipleship is one another. The church is completely different. That's why Proverbs uses the imagery of metal filings when it describes discipleship. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. The rough edges of our lives must be chiseled off. We are only sharpened when the shards of our sin are filed away. It's a painful process. Metal on metal scraping. This is why we shy away from it. This is why we pretend we don't need that. We're good, good where we are. But the second half of the definition of discipleship is the very nature of the Christian life, the very nature. Philippians chapter two, you have Christ who leaves the glory of heaven. He comes to earth to be a servant. It's grand theological truth, grand theological truth. But right before it, what does Paul say? Have that attitude in you. Yes, it's theology, but it's applied theology. It's real world theology. Have that Christology of Christ leaving heaven for earth, have that in you. Consider one another's, one another as better than yourself. It's discipleship. This is what the gospel does. It rescues us from the individualism of our world and saves us into a community into the one another's. So what the spirit does, he unites men and women from all walks of life into one body in Christ. Think of Galatians Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Our political affiliation is secondary. There's neither slave nor free man, our economic status, tertiary. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Our unity is found in Christ. That's what matters most. Mark Dever has put it so well, he writes this. Christianity is not for loners or individualists. It's for people traveling down the narrow path that leads to life. You must follow and you must lead. You must be loved and you must love. And we love others best by helping them to follow Jesus down the pathway of life. That's discipleship 101. We love others by helping them to follow Jesus down the pathway of life. And then he concludes, Christianity is not for the rugged individual, the self-made man who needs no one else. It's a religion for disciples of Christ, followers who lead others to do the same.
Let me add here, the goal, though, is not just discipleship. The goal is to grow a culture of discipleship, and each of those words is key. Take the word grow, first of all. Does discipleship take place at EBC? Answer, absolutely, absolutely. But the elders would love to see intentional discipleship expand more broadly among us. Our desire is to see each of us, if you call EBC your church home, each of us enter into a personal discipleship relationship. Remember what Herb said two weeks ago, time alone does not produce a mature Christian. Time alone does not produce a mature Christian. It's part of it, it doesn't exhaust it. Which leads to the second word, culture. Culture. This is not meant to be another church program or flash in the pan ministry. This is not just for 2022 and we just forget discipleship next year. Now, the elders' prayer is that personal, mutual, life-on-life discipleship will become a part of EBC's culture, our DNA, which means all of us, all of us must be involved in this, not spectators, but participants. We see discipleship as a way of life, See, discipleship is that which defines who we are as a people and what we do as a church. So this is why each of our ministries have designed this coming year around this theme of discipleship, not only to talk about it, but also to be a part of it. For the men's ministry, third Saturday of the month, men's ministry, they will focus on personal discipleship during their men's breakfast. Can you imagine a church filled with men discipling other men? A church filled with men leading spiritually in their homes, finding accountability with other believers, men being stretched by others and sharpened by others, even being softened by others? Be a part of the men's ministry for that end. For the ladies, each Titus 2, each Titus 2 event, as well as the spring and fall events, will focus very practically on how to disciple and what to disciple and who to disciple and when to disciple. There'll be small discipleship groups forming, beginning to meet intentional relationships, building. For the children, Awana Council Times, children's ministry, they'll focus on the marks of a disciple of Christ. What are the marks of a disciple of Christ? Because before we can disciple others, we need to be disciples of Jesus. What are those marks? But even beyond that, even within the children ministries teams, the leaders, there will be mutual and personal discipleship taking place amongst themselves. For the teens, the youth retreats will focus on this theme. In fact, the upcoming winter retreat is entitled Life in 3D. They will be looking at Jesus' call to discipleship, Mark chapter 8. Again, before you can disciple others, you must be a disciple of Jesus. Deny yourself, follow me. 
in Jesus' words. All that will lead into the summer pastoral sermon series. We'll get very practical. Again, answering questions like, who do you look for when you disciple someone? What does discipleship look like in the home? How do we know if our discipleship is effective? We'll focus on other topics as well. Then to our resource center, our books of the month. We'll have current authors. We'll even have dead authors. Usually the dead authors are better than the current authors. Everyone loves Spurgeon. Uh, we'll, we'll always have a Spurgeon book, and I'm always asked by the office, how many should I buy? I'm like, buy a hundred of them. It's almost the only book that sells throughout the year. Spurgeon, Bonhoeffer, but we're gonna be looking at discipleship. The book for this month, Spiritual Discipleship. Oswald Sanders, one of my favorite books. Every quarter we'll host a night of worship. That's discipleship as a church family, together, praying together, singing together, fulfilling that one another, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then throughout the year, something different, but throughout the year, we will be hosting discipleship workshops, discipleship workshops, practical discussions about how we can be an active discipler, looking at the tools to use, practical ways to better communicate God's word to others, looking at good discipleship strategies. We'll also be hosting a marriage discipleship weekend towards the end of the year. Again, our goal is to have discipleship permeate. It's not just one ministry. This is something that we wanna permeate all ministries. The goal of having personal, intentional, and selfless discipleship relationships throughout this church. Now, having said all of that, seen the overall plan, let me explain a bit how the elders, how the ministry leaders have prepared themselves for this endeavor this year. First of all, first of all, for the last five to six months, the elders and deacons and ministry leaders have been mutually discipling one another. They're mutually discipling one another. Each leader has been meeting on a regular basis in a one-on-one -on -one relationship with another leader, praying with each other, discussing God's word together, developing a friendship with one another. One, one group there, uh, they even, after they studied God's word, would go out into the parking lot and they'd play catch together. That's cool, played catch. They realized because of their age, they could only throw the ball like four times to each other. Like, okay, we're good, we're good. <laughs> that wasn't Kevin Brown at all. <laughs> but developing that, developing that friendship together. Now, one pastor puts it this way, discipleship is nothing more than building a true friendship with a spiritual basis. It's not being friends with someone because you both like baseball. They did other things. It's not being friends because you like the same music, the same hobbies, or work at the same place. At the core of your friendship, listen, at the core of your friendship is an openness about spiritual issues. That's discipleship, whittle it down. It's a spiritual friendship. It's a devoting of yourselves to someone else. 
because, you, because you're united in Christ. So we've begun to do that. We want to be ready for you. So we've done that for the last few months. In the next month or so, what you're going to see in your connections cards is a little checkoff box. It'll be entitled something like, I want to be discipled, something like that. Again, we want to be ready for when you do check that box off that we can pair you up with somebody. But there's a second way we've prepared, second way. We found someone within our church who has agreed to serve as our discipleship coordinator, our discipleship coordinator. It's easy in a church our size for someone to slip through the cracks with something like this. It's so easy. And email's not returned. Phone calls dropped. So we don't want that to happen. And so we've asked, and he's accepted. His name is Joseph Hunter. He's a member here at EBC. But he's someone who's spent the last few decades discipling others in very intentional ways. And he's agreed to serve as EBC's discipleship coordinator. And because he's going to be an integral part of this, I want to introduce Joseph to you. I want him actually to introduce himself. You can put a face with the name. Turn to the screen here. He's going to spend a few minutes introducing himself and why, why he has agreed to be a discipleship coordinator. So a question that was asked of me is, why did I agree to be the discipleship coordinator? The first thing that I thought back to was when I was 17 years old, my first week at college down in Southern Oregon State College. Uh, there was a man uh, that approached me as I was finishing registration. His name was Will McDonald. And he approached me and said, hey, um, I, it looks like you've been uh, staring at our book table here. I had only been on campus for a few days, and Will saw me uh, looking at a table that he had set up for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He was the staff person for that. And on the table were a number of Christian books, and he saw me glance at it as I walked by, and he immediately uh, nabbed a hold of me, and there started a lifelong relationship I had with him. He was my spiritual father. He shaped me. He shaped my walk with Christ. And in many ways, uh, I am today who I am in Christ because of his discipleship of me. Uh, he would regularly take me to coffee. We would talk about our quiet times, uh, my quiet time, his quiet time. Uh, he would uh, do fun things with me. He introduced me to the far side karma. Uh, and we'd just hang out. He, he would also just regularly take me to his home and uh, made me part of his, his family and a friend. He made me more than a project. Uh, he actually discipled me. He gave me great books. Uh, he introduced me to Spurgeon and A.W. Tozer and J.I. Packer and John Scott and C.S. Lewis. He trained me in theology with books from J.I. Packer and John Stott and, and A.W. Pink. Basically, what I'm saying to you is he discipled me. That's what Will did for me, and it's what I've done since I was 17, 18 years old, leading my first Bible studies. Um, for me and my wife, 20 years of leading marriage encounters, the basics of that is discipleship, is encouraging others to follow Christ. 
disciples themselves. When I thought about it in my whole life and who I am, it's because of the discipleship that Will McDonald provided to me. Thank you so much for letting me share. You can just see the impact that somebody else had on him, and then in turn, turning that into a relationship with others to see the impact uh, that God's word can have with the Lord using you, using you in the lives of one another. So we're excited about this year. We're excited to see how the Lord is gonna use each one of us, how we can each be a part of the spiritual growth of those in this room, those apart of this church. All right, well, all of that, we probably should look in the Bible, right? Probably. We've answered the what question, what is discipleship? We've answered the how question, how are we going to seek to develop and grow this culture here at EBC? Let's answer the why question now. Why? Why should you be in a discipleship relationship? Why is this important? Why should you come out of your comfort zone of individualism and open yourself up to another believer? Why can't you just go at the Christian life alone? And there's three reasons I wanna highlight here. There's certainly more, I just wanna highlight three as we conclude our time. Why do we each need to be in a discipleship relationship? Here's the first reason, reason number one, because Christ thinks we need a discipleship relationship. Christ thinks we need a discipleship relationship. We might not think we need others to sharpen us and our faith, but Jesus does. Our Savior does. Turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, we'll look at three passages, one passage for each reason. Mark chapter 3, I just want you to notice as Jesus appoints his apostles, verse 14, we are told that he appointed 12, Mark three fourteen. He appointed 12. This now divides Jesus's ministry into two parts. The first year or so, Jesus was ministering alone. To now the last two or so years, when Jesus specifically prepares in order to send a group of men to carry on his gospel work. So he's preparing them. How is he going to prepare them? Notice what must first take place. He appoints 12 so that they would, and mark these three words down, be with him. They must be with him. These men needed to travel with Christ and live with Christ. They needed to be taught by Jesus outside of his public proclamation. They needed to be able to ask him personal questions and hear very pointed application. This is because the Christian life is more than growing in knowledge. That is part of it, necessary, but it's more than that. Knowledge without application only puffs up. Learning in an individualized vacuum Learning in an individualized vacuum makes a judgmental Christian, not a humble believer. Why? Because you're always right. And like it or not, you are not always right. And so Jesus knows before these men would be ready to be sent out, ready to disciple others, ready to bring this gospel, they needed to first spend time with him personally, daily, intentionally, intentionally. 
And you see Jesus, the discipler, throughout his ministry. These 12 needed personal instruction. Think of their request in Luke 11. They asked Jesus personally, Lord, teach us. Teach us to pray. Which gives Jesus now that personal one-on-one time to teach them. They needed the opportunity to ask clarifying questions. They do this in Matthew 19. Jesus speaks about divorce and remarriage and they ask Jesus as they're alone, something like this, Lord, you need to explain this further to us. We need you to clarify. We didn't all get it. I'm under no, no idea that you get everything I say on a Sunday morning. We need those times of personal application, clarifying questions. They also needed to hear personal encouragement. Matthew 19, Jesus said to them, he's not speaking to the crowds, he's speaking only to these men. He says to them, truly, I say to you, this is personal, this is specific for you, that you who have followed me shall sit upon 12 thrones judging 12 tribes of Israel. Here's your reward that's coming. It's personal, specific, individualized for you, personal encouragement. They needed to hear pointed rebuke, pointed rebuke. Jesus rebuked Peter. Jesus looks directly into Peter's eyes and he says to him, get behind me who? Satan, get behind me, Satan. He holds no punches. This is iron sharpening iron. Get behind me, Satan, for you, personal rebuke, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. We need this. We need that brother or sister, spiritual father or mother to come alongside of us and bring us this rebuke. You need to repent, you need to turn. Twelve needed to see Christ model faithfulness. They needed to see him weep as he prayed. They needed to see him bold before his enemies. And none of that could have happened. None of that could have happened if Jesus did not appoint them to be with him, specific with him. Lance Quinn put it this way. One cannot truly influence those he does not spend time with. If someone is going to reproduce himself in the lives of others, it will result from a purposeful association of spiritual fellowship and biblical nurturing. It's devoting ourselves to the spiritual growth of others. Christ considered personal discipleship essential in the lives of his first followers. And nothing has changed in these last 2,000 years. We too need those times to ask those clarifying questions. We too need individualized application. We need that personal encouragement. We need those personal rebukes when necessary. We each need those spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers, brothers, sisters in the faith to show us what faithfulness looks like. So why should you be in a discipleship relationship? Why should you come out of your comfort zone of individualism and open up yourself to others? Because Christ thinks you need a discipleship relationship. 
leads to a second reason. Reason number two. Because discipleship is one way the church guards the gospel's purity. Discipleship is one way the church guards the gospel's purity. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Listen to Paul's instruction, Timothy. Understand this is Paul's farewell address, letter. Timothy is a son in the faith. Paul calls him that. Paul was Timothy's spiritual father. Paul knows that his death is soon. He knows the spiritual battle Timothy is going to wage. He just knows what this Ephesian church is going to face, Timothy being the leader of this church. So look at chapter one, start there. Chapter one, verse eight. He's gonna command Timothy now, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Testimony of our Lord, a reference to the gospel. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Again, Paul knows the persecution that will soon descend upon this church. In fact, Hebrews will tell us that Timothy will be thrown into prison. Look at verse 13. Retain the standard of sound words, sound doctrine. Shore up your theology, Timothy. Do not water it down, protect it. Why? Because back in 1 Timothy, Paul called the church the pillar and support of the truth. Church holds on to the truth, proclaims the truth, upholds the truth. Hold fast to the truth, Timothy, verse 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Guard the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Another reference to the gospel. Guard the gospel. To repeat, look over at 1 Timothy chapter 6, just to repeat of verse 20. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard it with all of your might. Protect it. Stand as a spiritual sentinel for the gospel. Defend it, preserve it. This is what Paul cared most about. As he comes to the end of his life, he's caring about the gospel's purity, he's caring about sound doctrine, right theology. The possibility of heresy entering the church was a constant concern for Paul, constant concern. Think of 2 Corinthians 11. I am afraid, Paul writes. It's amazing. Paul's not afraid of anything. He stands bold. He proclaims. He says, I'm afraid. What are you afraid of, Paul? I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's what I'm fearful of. That you're not gonna hold the gospel. The error will seep into the church. Now notice though, chapter two. From the commands, guard, preserve, Defend. Paul tells Timothy how he is going to do this. Start in chapter two, verse one. You, therefore, on the heels of all these commands, you, therefore, my son, be strong 
Don't be fearful. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ. Rest on Christ, Timothy. That's how you guard the truth. Trust him. Believe his promises. Follow his commands. Trust him. Rest on him. Rest on his grace. But don't stop there. That's foundational, but don't stop there. Verse two, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is Paul's strategy for how the church is to protect the purity of the gospel. First, Paul teaches Timothy. He teaches him sound doctrine. Paul personally took Timothy under his wing. Paul invested in Timothy's life. Timothy learned from Paul's example. He experienced Paul's love and care. He saw Paul's commitment to the gospel as boldness. That is discipleship 101. Paul was a spiritual father. Which then leads to Timothy following Paul's model. Timothy now must entrust, deposit is the word, invest. Timothy was to entrust gospel truths into the lives of faithful men. So what Paul did for Timothy, Timothy is now to do for others. Which is then followed by those faithful men readied by Timothy's discipleship of them, his investing in them, to then pass that same gospel truth to others also. And the implication is it doesn't stop there. It continues on and on in every generation. So there's four generations of discipleship. This is the way gospel truth is guarded. Four generations. Generation one, Paul. Generation two, Timothy. Generation three, faithful men. Generation four, others also. It's passed on from person to person. It's personal, it's intentional. And interestingly enough, we see the same generational discipleship in Titus chapter two. Paul disciples Titus. Titus then, chapter two, verse two, speaks the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Again, holding on to right theology, the gospel sound doctrine. Paul teaches Titus those things. Titus then speaks those things specifically to older women. And then those older women encourage the young women in the faith. Four generations of discipleship. And so understand your discipleship goes far beyond yourself. Your discipleship is not only for you now, this week, this year. This is for generations who are coming later. Now look at chapter two again of 2 Timothy. Is this going to come with some cost? Absolutely, absolutely. In Timothy's case, it's going to mean further suffering. See that in verse three. On the heels of this discipleship call, verse three, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Gospel purity will be met with resistance. Suffer hardship. Sometimes 
Sometimes that's hardship from somebody who you love. That you bring that encouragement, uh, you bring that teaching, and then you bring that rebuke, and it's painful to see that person walk away. Sometimes that's the suffering. Paul experienced that. He devoted himself to Demas, and Demas left him loving this present world. It will mean further suffering. It will also mean that Timothy would have to reorient his life's priorities. Verse four, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. It also meant that Timothy would have to live a life of spiritual discipline. Spiritual discipline, verse five. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. You discipline yourself as the athlete running that race. Spiritual disciplines. And those same costs involved with discipling others, again, those will most likely will be true of us. If we are going to take discipleship seriously, then we will suffer for the sake of the gospel. We will suffer. We will have to reorient our life's priorities. We will have to say no to certain things, things that we like to do. We'll have to discipline ourselves spiritually. Prioritizing discipleship will cost us. It will require us to love one another in selfless ways. It'll cost us our alone time. It'll mean the sacrifice of our energy. Like I said previous, at times it will mean heartache. But look at verse six. The cost is worth it. It's worth it, verse six. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Fruitfulness will be a reward for prioritizing discipleship. Fruitfulness, reward. Reward now, reward later. An exponential reward. This is reward because this purity of the gospel through you, the spiritual impact you will have on one another will then move into even further generations. So why should you be in a discipleship relationship? Because discipleship is one way you, as part of this church, it is one way that you can guard the gospel's purity and then pass on that gospel from generation to generation. Which leads into reason number three. Final reason we'll look at this morning, reason number three. Discipleship, is how fellow believers remain faithful to the gospel. Discipleship is how fellow believers remain faithful to the gospel. So turn to Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to notice verse 23. Hebrews 10, 23, we are told this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So understand the context here. Believers were being tempted to leave the faith, to waver. 
They're tempted by outside pressures. We see some of those pressures in verse 32. Remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. But you remained faithful to them, personal relationships with them were continued. You showed sympathy to the prisoners. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Talk about a cost. You show love uh, to the person who's being persecuted. And what happens? You go to them and see them in prison. And when you return, your property has been seized. That's what's going on. So they're being tested. Well, they waver in their commitment to Jesus. They're outside pressures, but they're also being tempted to leave the faith by those who had once been close to them. Those who claimed to be Christians but ended up defecting from the true gospel. They left the true church. They exchanged the once for all sacrifice of Christ for the daily sacrifices in the temple. They left the gathering together so that they could worship in the temple. They left the gospel of grace for the gospel of of works, continual sacrifice. Look at verse 25. Those are the ones mentioned who forsook, they were forsaking our own assembly. They chose the temple. They chose its repeated sacrifices over the church that rested on the final sacrifice of Jesus. They forsook their own assembly, as is the habit of some. And the writer here is concerned. I don't want that to happen to you. I don't want you to waver. I don't want you to leave the faith. Be careful. That's why he gives warnings throughout this book. But notice how one remains faithful when tempted to leave the faith. First, verse 23. The Lord secures our soul. That's how we remain faithful. The Lord secures our soul. The end of verse 23, we can only hold fast our confession because he who promised is what? He's faithful. He will not let us go. He seals us with his spirit. He holds us fast. But notice, this is not where the writer ends. Yes, the Lord is faithful to secure his own. He will never lose any of his people, ever. But notice the means by which he will do this. Verse 24, let us, from the faithfulness of our Savior, now to us, the one and others, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We remain faithful through our care, through our concern, our relationship with other believers. We need one another. We need one another. It's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says back in chapter three, verse 13. Encourage one another when? Day after day, Listen, this is how weak we are in and of ourselves. 
We need one another, encouragement day after day. And if you don't understand what that means, the writer then is going to be specific, as long as it is still called today. So as long as it's today, this is our calling. Why? So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Christianity is not for that rugged individual. Christianity is for the one who submits themselves to Christ, the disciple of him, and then gives themselves to others and in turn allows one another to give themselves to them. And note here in Hebrews, the writer is not talking to pastors or elders or the deacons, the ministry leaders, the church staff. That's their job. I'm waiting for them to call me to encourage me. He's talking about each of us. Each of us. Let us. Let us care about one another. Let us love one another. Let us be in that personal relationship together. So much so, verse 24, that we stimulate one another to love and good deeds. It's not a passing hello. We're stimulating one another to obedience. Again, back in Hebrews 3, we encourage that none of us will be hardened by sin. We need discipleship relationships for our faithfulness to the gospel depends upon them. There's much more that I could say. We'll work our way through this, no doubt, as the year continues. But I hope this is a priming of the pump. I hope that there's an excitement as we enter into this new year. Our prayer is that this will be a growing year for us, a uniting year as we devote ourselves to God's word and then give ourselves to one another. Father, we look forward to what you are going to do here at this church. We know that it will take commitment. We know that there's a cost and yet the cost is worth it. May our Christ-likeness show itself in discipleship May we see Christ's example and want to follow that and imitate it. May we see Paul's example and imitate him as he imitates Christ. May we be one of those generations that sees beyond themselves and devotes themselves to the next generation of believers for the glory of your name. We pray this because of Christ. Amen.